0: This is the Unity Community of Central Oregon podcast. I got a text message from Reverend Jane asking if I would like to be the platform host today for Dr. Terry Daniel. And I was like, I will mow over anyone to get that job. (laughs) I was so excited and I'm so excited for her workshop. Um, death and dying has become my passion. My husband will tell you he's lost me to hospice. I'm having a love affair with death and dying. <laughs> so I invite you to fall in love today. Dr. Terry Daniel is an interfaith hospice chaplain, end-of-life educator and grief counselor certified in death, dying, and bereavement by the Association of Death Education and Counseling, and in trauma support by the International Association of Trauma Professionals. Dr. Daniel conducts workshops throughout the US and teaches at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. Terry is also the founder of the Conference on Death, Grief and Belief, coming to portland in july and the ask dr death podcast she is also the author of four books on death grief and the afterlife over the years terry has helped hundreds of people learn to live die and grieve more consciously her work is acclaimed by hospice professionals, spiritual seekers, therapists, theologians, and academics worldwide. Dr. Daniel has a BA in Religious Studies from Merrillhurst University, an MA in Pastoral Care from Forham University, and a Doctor of Ministry in Pastoral Counseling from the San Francisco Theological Seminary. If you wanna learn more, after today you can go to spiritualityandgrief.com with that it is my honor and my pleasure to introduce dr terry daniel
1: thank you everybody can you hear am i on yeah you know the last time i was here it was in the grange hall that was was four four years ago, ago i think and the music, by the way, that was gorgeous. Thank you for that beautiful music. I used to live in Sisters for six years. And I started out my career as a hospice volunteer, originally uh, with the Hospice of Redmond and Sisters. I don't think it's called that anymore. And also with partners in care. So doing that, I fell in love with it as well. and. Um, I found that I became really interested in having spiritual conversations with people because obviously they were having existential questions at end of life. But as a volunteer, you're very limited. You're actually not allowed to have those conversations. You're supposed to always refer them to the chaplain. So I said, well, I guess I better go back to school and become a chaplain. So that's what I did for the next uh, 10 years, for the last 10 years. And and here I am. And I got so enamored with that whole process of studying and education and training that I went all the way to uh, getting a doctorate. So, oops, so there I am. So now I'm Dr. Daniel, uh, AKA Dr. Death, which is the name of my podcast. And um, I talk about death. And uh, I'm gonna talk to you today about something, you know, probably your least favorite subject or maybe your favorite subject, wherever you are on that spectrum, which is about preparing for your own death or the death of somebody close to you that you are gonna have to deal with in some way. And in the workshop this afternoon, I'm gonna go into a lot of detail about it and cover a lot of very grassroots planning, details. um, Even down to, you know, describing what happens to the body in cremation. So we're going to go to that level of detail. But here, I'm going to just talk about a couple of quick points because I only have 20 minutes. And um, there's four main things that we have to look at when we're looking at end of life. And I'll just kind of go down the list. The first one that's most important to me as a chaplain is religious and spiritual beliefs that paint a picture of death and perhaps the afterlife that may be helpful and also may be harmful one of my books that you'll see out there my newest book is called grief and god when religion does more harm than healing i have found in my years of hospice work now that many people experience undo anxiety at end of life because they believe in sin and original sin or personal sin and salvation and punishment and hell so that's one problem area that we deal with another problem area is death as depicted in the media so you know, if you, if you are young or you have little kids and they're playing video games where people are getting killed and there's blood spattering everywhere and death is this horrible violent thing, which we've all seen in all kinds of media growing up, movies and TV and whatever, we have that. But we also have another version of death depicted in the media that it's beautiful and you're laying in your bed surrounded by your family members and everybody's crying and the whole family is there. Those are two opposite extremes. Either one of those can happen and anything in between, but both of those give us an image that isn't necessarily realistic. Of course we want the happy death in our bed with our loved ones, but many of us don't get that. So what do we get? Well, hopefully we get something that we can kind of create or co-create or be proactive about creating, though ultimately there's no way to say. We can do a few little things to prepare for it, but we never know what's going to happen. So that's the second thing death as depicted in the media. The third thing is our attachments to assumptions about how life is supposed to work. So we live with all these assumptions, and they're necessary because if we didn't have them, we would never take a risk. So for example, we have an assumption that children are not supposed to die before their parents. How many times have you heard that said? But we know that that isn't true. We have an assumption that marriage is supposed to last forever. Nuff said. (laughs) 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 And and we have assumptions about everything. We have an assumption that we advance in our career and we have a nice fat paycheck so we can buy a house, we get married, we have some kids, we get a dog, and we have an assumption that that's all going to hold up, you know, that that's all going to last. And it doesn't, nothing does. We know that everything is impermanent, but these assumptions come into our relationship with death. You know, I, I'm only 42, I'm not supposed to die. That's an assumption. You know, uh, the assumption is that the medical establishment will support you, or the spiritual establishment will support you, and that's not always true. So we have this process of shattering assumptions that comes into our relationship with death. And then the fourth piece of it is the practical applications of death. What does it look like? Why are we afraid of it? We're really afraid of suffering and pain. But if we die um, a natural death, not talking about getting hit by a train, uh, and we're in hospice care, we will not have pain. That's what hospice does. We relieve pain, number one. That's the prime directive. Relieve pain and keep you comfortable. What does it feel like? Will I die alone? Will I have family members around me? Will I die slowly? Will I die suddenly? Who will come and clean out my house and deal with my possessions after I'm gone? What if I'm all alone in my apartment and, my do- and I die and nobody knows and my dog eats me, you know? <laughs> these are real concerns that people who live alone have. Me, that's, that's mine. <laughs> and, you know, what about my assets, my money? How much medical intervention do I want? So there's all these practical things. And that's what we're gonna go uh, into detail about in the workshop, but I wanna very quickly give you some statistics that you're gonna find interesting. And this is the one that I find most important, and I see that there are some of the people here today old enough to be on Medicare, so you will relate to this. Think about the mathematics here. One quarter of the entire Medicare budget is spent in the last year of a patient's life. 40 percent of that amount is spent in the last 30 days so in the last 30 days that medicare money is hopefully being spent on hospice let us hope but for many people it's spent on last minute interventions resuscitation life support ventilators emergency surgeries um, all of that that's where that money is going so keeping people alive past a certain point of natural death is a real drain on resources to, to put it mildly another statistic the population of americans 65 and older is projected to grow from 58 million in 2021 to 88 million in 2050. so that's 30 million more people over 65 in the next 30 years um, why is that happening because uh, it's not because of the baby boom, because we're at the end of the baby boomers' time now. It's because people are being kept alive so much longer. And so a really interesting thought about this is, the: how many of you have ever done long-term caregiving for somebody, more than a year? More than two, three years, anybody? Okay. So. Lots of people are doing long-term caregiving for many years, five years, 10 years. I have lots of hospice families where the old grandmother is in the house and the family's been taking care of her for 10 years. That kind of caregiving did not exist in our grandparents' generation. Nobody here has a grandparent that ever took care of a terminally ill person for five years, or even three years, or even two years. Do you know why, anybody? They died. They died, that's what they were supposed to do. So now we have this whole new world where we don't die. And so what happens to us as the healthy person, the caregiver, is we have this new aspect of our life called long-term caregiving, which depletes us. You know, we, we quit our job to take care of mom, we move to another state to be with the family, um, we give up everything in our life, it depletes our health, we don't sleep, we don't eat, it's, it's an incredible burden. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but we shouldn't do it for 10 years. And the reason that we're doing it for 10 years is because grandma's constantly going to the hospital and getting another stent in her heart or more dialysis or more chemo or whatever it is. And so here is a statistic about that. Um, and okay, Well here it is, in 1901, of white females, and it's white females because that's who they surveyed in this survey, lived to be 60, and only about 5% of those lived to be 90. This is 1901. In 2004, the whole statistic reverses. 90% of white females lived to be age 60, and more than 25% lived to be 90. And so, bottom line, we're living really, really long many many years ago way before i was interested in this topic i was at a party and i met this doctor and we were chatting and she told me i think everybody should just die when they're 70. and i i thought what a horrible person you are (laughs) what kind of doctor are you And now I understand, and of course not, I mean I'm 70, I'm gonna be 70 on my next birthday. I'm healthy, I'm not ready to die. So obviously the age doesn't really matter. It has to do with quality of life and the condition of your health. Um, Everybody should die when keeping you alive is creating more suffering. That's real simple, that's the rule. And um, it goes back, Here's, here's some other historical stuff. So way in the old days, before the Industrial Revolution, which is way before death became medicalized, let's go back to, let's say, Redmond, Oregon in the 1840s. And here's the farmer, and he's out there in his field, and he's been inhaling dust and stuff you know, for years, and his back is all hurt and everything, and he's a really old guy, he's probably 50, right? <laughs> and he's been doing this his whole life, and he just knows that he's done and he goes in the house and he says to his wife i'm getting ready to die now and he gets in his bed he says call the priest call the kids that's how people used to die i mean way in ancient times up until 1930s probably up until penicillin i think is probably what it is and so that's what we call tamed death that death is a partner to us it's part of our life And it's like having a tamed animal, your dog is tame, it's not a wild wolf that's going to come in your house and eat you, it's a tamed animal. It's still a wolf, it's still an animal, but it's fitting into your life nicely and it works with you. So it's tamed death. It's a prevailing knowing and acceptance. Prevailed all through the Middle Ages, you see it in art and literature and movies and music and songs. And this knowing came from us being in touch with our bodies and being able to read the natural signs of decrepitude or decline and to listen to those signs. So when that old farmer started to feel those signs, who knows what he had, you know his heart was weak, blood pressure, maybe prostate cancer, could have been anything, Um, he just knew. And he didn't call 911 and go patch it up. He had everything kind of at peace with his life. He had his land and his property and his descendants and his religion and all the things that he needed, and he was, he was good to go. We don't do that anymore. And because we have so much intervention, it's actually robbed us of that instinct, of that inner knowing. Now, when we get a hangnail, we go to the ER. You know, I mean, I, I think about my parents <laughs> My mother just went to the doctor all the time for everything and yet I know other people in their 80s who've never even been to a doctor and are healthy and just know how to listen to their bodies. So what we now now have is something called forbidden death. Death is the enemy. Death is forbidden and we want to fight it off as much as possible and I'm sure you've all heard stories like this. A friend of mine, his father was very seriously ill. He was in ICU, he was dying and uh, I said to my friend, you got to get him into hospice, get him out of ICU right now. He had all the qualifications to be hospice certified. So my friend talked to his dad's doctor and said this and the doctor said, I only put people in hospice three days before they die which is ridiculous because nobody knows when three days before they die is gonna be. People are in hospice that look like they're gonna die in three days and they live for another two years. So it's ridiculous to have a thought like that and it just shows that this doctor's idea of hospice is that it's a warehouse where you throw people for them to die and you just give them morphine and you kill them and they die. So many doctors think this and this is the problem. And, And I say this all the time, and this is a big conversation with hospice professionals, we blame it on the doctors. We really do. Because you go to your oncologist, you go to your cardiologist, and they're going to sell you every treatment that they have. Not because they're greedy and they want to make money and buy a new boat this year, though maybe that could be the reason, but because that's, why they're, that's how they're trained. That's what they're supposed to do. They are mechanics, and their job is to keep the engine running, just like taking your car to a mechanic and they don't have any training in spiritual care and they don't have any training in death care. So um, if you listen to my Ask Dr. Death podcast, we've interviewed many doctors of all ages, from a young 28-year-old kid who's just in his residency to an 80-year-old doctor who's retired and everything in between, and we ask them, how much training did you have in medical school for death? And they all say, zero, none, zip. There is a palliative care rotation that medical students can do, but it's an elective, which means that it's not required. Now, um, at Partners in Care, when I was volunteering there, this was a really long time ago, like 12, 13 years ago, um, I was in there one day, and a couple of paramedics came in, and they were just hanging out. And I said, what are you guys doing here? And they said, it's part of our training that we spend one day in hospice which I thought was the greatest thing in the world, because those guys, their vision of death is scraping people off the pavement from a car accident. And for them to spend a day at the hospice house gave them a completely vision, different vision of what death could look like. So I was so thrilled to see that. Doctors don't do that. They don't spend one day at Partners in Care Hospice House watching how people die consciously. So it's pretty sad. Um, What happens with the doctors is not only are they not educated in death care, but they're not educated, they don't even know what hospice is. And they will, you know, there have been surveys, there have been studies done where they ask a doctor, describe to me what hospice does, and they'll all say, it's where you go when you're, you know, literally on your last breath and you go there to die. But that's not what hospice is. Hospice is where you go when you have a diagnosis that suggests that you are probably gonna die within six months and the six month thing isn't even real. That's only what Medicare requires it to be called. And it, you, go, you don't go to hospice, hospice comes to you. Luckily here in Bend you have an inpatient hospice facility. There are very few of those. They're shutting down all over the country. They can't afford to keep them going anymore because They have to own real estate, they have a building, and so it's a big overhead. So hospice is now almost exclusively home hospice. And I hope this Partners in Care will stay here forever. But, you know, all the ones in Portland are gone now. And so hospice comes to you. They come to your house, they come to your nursing home, wherever you are, and they provide comfort care, end-of-life care. Whatever pain intervention you need, you have it. You have spiritual care, the chaplain comes, the social worker comes to help you find resources. Um, The music therapist comes. Um, Yeah, music music is a whole other thing that's amazing. And they come and they sing songs to you. And um, the CNA, the nursing assistant, comes and gives you a bath and cleans you up. And uh, the volunteers come and keep you company and talk to you. You don't get that in regular medical care. And also now in hospice is we have something called palliative care, which is you get all of that, but you can still have an intervention if you want to. You can still go to the hospital and um, you can get surgery. You can still have chemo. You can still have dialysis, you're just in palliative care instead of hospice care, but it's run by the same hospice. This is a whole other discussion. I don't have a lot of time, so I want to talk about uh, the stages of facing death. So you've all heard about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She wrote a book called On Death and Dying, and she came up with these five stages, in air quotes. And really what she did was this. It was not a bona fide academic study. It was just an informal bunch of interviews that she did. She went to a hospital. She interviewed 200 people who were dying who had a terminal Uh, diagnosis and she interviewed them. It was not an actual study. And of all their responses to facing their own death, she identified the five most common responses, which were denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And she wrote this book. The trick was, the problem was, she called them stages and she should have called them responses. It's a very big difference. Stage theory means it goes from one to the other to the other to the other, right? So she got very famous writing this, but she was really talking about responses to death. And then along came a guy by the name of David Kessler, in I think maybe the early 1990s, I'm not sure when, and he pitched her an idea. And the idea was, let's take your book on death and dying and turn it into a book called On Grief and Grieving, and we'll take your five stages for facing death and we'll attach them to grief. And that's how we got the five stages of grief. Nobody in the grief counseling world or the hospice world or the psychology world uses that anymore. It became hugely popular because of this book and uh, it, it doesn't work, it doesn't apply. And if you go to a grief counselor who starts talking to you about the stages of grief, just get up and leave and, and go to somebody else. So what we really have, back to her original work, is there are stages of facing death. So and this goes back to this you know, ancient idea of tamed death. So the first stage, or you know, respo- let me back to responses. Going back to the idea of responses for a minute. Instead of those five responses, can you think of other responses that you might have to facing your death or grief? Anybody? Anger, Anger, we have anger, it's already on the list. Fear, for sure. Anything else? Gratitude. Gratitude. Relief. Relief, Relief. thank you, yes. Exactly, Um, regret, exhilaration, anticipation, excitement, relief, guilt, see how many things there are? And they all go along with those, quote, stages, denial, acceptance, anger, depression, pardoning. So it's all about responses, not stages. Okay, moving forward. So the real stages of facing death start with acknowledging your attachments to life. So that's where you're saying goodbye to your loved ones, perhaps you're giving away your possessions, um, you're reviewing your life. You know, A lovely thing to do with somebody who's dying is to sit and look at all the family photo albums and you know, talk about the old stories and just do this review and recognize that you are letting go of these attachments. And in, in the ancient uh, tamed death idea it was called, laying down your weapons or laying down your tools of the trade. So the old farmer over here in Redmond in 1840 um, would be bequeathing his tools to his son for taking care of the farm and his possessions and whatever he's giving to the community. He would call the neighborhood carpenter and have his coffin built. He would plan the songs that he wants to have at his funeral. That's the acknowledging of attachments and releasing of attachments. That is a stage of facing death. It's also part of facing grief, isn't it? You know, where we're acknowledging our attachment to the lost object or person. And I say lost object because we don't just grieve over the loss of a person. We grieve over the loss of a job, loss of money, loss of a home, loss of identity, loss of community, loss of friendships, all kinds of losses. So I just say the lost object. And so then the next stage or the next task is um, acknowledging the sadness of leaving those things. I'm really sad. I'm going to miss life. I'm going to miss my kids. I'm going to miss my horse. I'm going to miss my stuff. And you say goodbye and you you do maybe prayers of lamentation, uh, forgiveness, all blessings, crying, reminiscing, all of that. And then the next one, the next place that you go to is looking forward to what's next. Now, what's next? What happens after we die? I have my own assumptions and beliefs and preferences about what I'd like to think that the afterlife is, but I will never stand here and tell all of you that I am absolutely correct about that or that I know exactly what it is. But whatever it is, and whatever you think it is, that's where you now start to focus your energy. You start to leave the physical world stuff behind, and you start to move more into the spiritual world, whatever that looks like for you. And if you've ever been with a person who's dying, actively dying, um, you can see that happening just by looking at them. They, they, you know, medically speaking, they'll say, well, they're sleeping more. You know, they, they'll sleep 16 hours a day. but They're not really sleeping, in my opinion. They're traveling. They're out of the body. They're visiting their ancestors. They're visiting the other realms. That's where they're going. And that's why when somebody's dying, hospice volunteers will know this, and you walk into the room, you don't wake them up and go, Mildred, hi, it's me. I'm here to visit you today. Or, Or, you know, your cousin Fred is here. He just flew in from Singapore. Wake up, Mildred. Never do that. Never wake them up. Just let them be where they are. But it's very hard if it's your loved one and you want to talk to them. Maybe you have unfinished business and you haven't said goodbye, and you, know, you want mom to open her eyes and acknowledge you. And this is why you have to do all that stuff first. You have to do that earlier because once they get into that active dying stage, even holding their hand will bring them back into their body. So, and this is very hard. But this is what hospice will educate people to do. Is somebody gonna give me a time thing to let me know how, like two minutes, so I know when to stop? Because I think I probably hit 20 minutes by now, right? Okay. I wasn't timing. (laughs) All right, it's five after 11, so I don't know what the time thing is, so. But I'll I'll just wrap up right now. So um, here are the things that we're gonna talk about in the workshop. We're gonna talk about um, trajectories of decline. What, so here you are, and uh, let's say you have cancer and I'll I'll draw this during the workshop, but you know, you're kind of cruising along with your treatments and then you hit a point where you just go down. We're all going down all the time, okay? Here we are, we're born, we're a baby, and from here we're just starting to go down, right? But when you get older and you start to get sick right in the middle of that line, you're going down the line and you take these dips. Here's a dip, you had a heart attack. Then you get patched up, you come back up, right? Go along again, here's another little dip, you have a mini stroke dip, but you come back and you're okay. But no matter how much you come back, you're never going back up here again. You're never going back to baseline. You're going down, 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 dip, down, 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 dip, da-da-da-da-da. And to to visualize it like that is really helpful because so many people who have that heart attack or that stroke have this idea that they're going to go back to where they were before. And past a certain age, that is not going to happen. And I'm sure you've all seen this with people you know. I mean, I see people all the time, and she's like, well, you know, they have this treatment that they're going to do for my husband. So the husband has the treatment, and he comes home, but he's still very frail. And he isn't the guy who can go fix the roof like he used to be. You know, he's not the guy who can take the boat out on a trip on a Sunday. And it's so hard for people to understand that because they don't have that visual idea of the trajectory. So some people might hear me say this and go, you are so morbid, you are so negative. <laughs> you know, All you're thinking about is that this is where we're going, but you know what, this is where we're going. And, and the more that we can make friends with that and make peace with it, the better it's gonna be when we go there. Now again, this does not consider walking outside today and getting in a car crash and getting killed, or worse, not getting killed. So we have an episode on uh, Ask Dr. Death, it's, go to askdoctordeath.com, and it's Dr. spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R, because Dr. D-R Death is Jack Kevorkian. So it's Ask Dr. Death and, and this episode is called, What Happens When We Don't Die? So everybody always says, what happens when we die? And we want to say, well, what happens if you don't die? What if you have that stroke and you survive, but now you can't talk? You can't walk, you can't feed yourself. Um, What can you do to prevent that? I wish I had the answer, you really can't. Um, What you can do is make sure that your life is set up to support you if that happens and that's too much detail, we'll talk about that uh, later on. Uh, Or you know, can you just take yourself out if you want? And there are ways, yes you can. (laughs) You'll have to come to the workshop to know about that. Okay, I think that's what I've got for now. Thank you. Thank you all so (laughs) much.